Good morning. I didn't hear you. See, everybody up in here today looks like they've been rode hard and put away wet. What's wrong with y'all? Leaning all up on your arms and your hands, stuff like that. What is it? Did you guys not get enough sleep last night? Is that what the problem is? You working too hard? You bored being in your house? What is it? I don't know what it is, but I I think you've dragged me down. So I'm just going to do the lesson like you guys are. Hey, welcome to Barah Ministries. <laughs> Intimate local Christian church. It sometimes has worldwide impact. My name? I don't remember. I didn't get any sleep last night, so. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. As Lord, he is 100% deity. He is God the Son. And he's also 100% human, just like you and me, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus Christ, and lived among us. He is the uniquely born one, the God-man. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the Savior of the whole world, and he is the Jewish Messiah. And those who make Barah Ministries their spiritual home are Christians. We are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord because Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a person and not a concept. He's not a thing. And just as we do with anyone whom we love, we spend time getting to know the Lord through the study of his word, because you can't get to know the Lord without knowing his mind. And the Bible is the mind of Christ. It is his exact thinking. Today's Bible lesson, sexless marriage encourages adultery. Sexless marriage encourages adultery. Well, now everybody's bright and eyed and bushy-tailed because we're going to talk about sex today. And one of the things that's absolutely amazing is, you know what, one of the things that's kind of amazing is that a lot of pastors don't want to talk about sex. But I'm going to shock you now. God created sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. When God said, be fruitful and multiply, he was talking to animals, but he was talking to us because, as well because he expected us to propagate the species, and that's one function of sex. That if a man and a woman have sex, they might have a baby. And if the man and the woman have sex and have a baby, then there are more people on the earth. So one function of sex is to propagate the species. But another function of sex is recreation. And God created sex for recreation and for procreation. So when he said be fruitful and multiply... There's only one way to do that, and that's sex. So I don't have to spell that out for you, I don't think. Well, what is God's attitude toward sex, especially sex within marriage? If you're married, is your attitude toward sex within your marriage the same as his? Or is your viewpoint of sexuality perverted by prudish parents and by a legalistic world that is always seeking Steal the joy from everything good, especially sex. In today's lesson, we'll learn God's intention for sex within marriage so that you can orient yourselves to his will for your lives. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's start with some music. 
When you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father places you on a predetermined course for your life. Factoring in your free will choices into this course and allowing them all as part of his master plan, the Father directs your path. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this, And we believers in Christ know that God the Father causes all things to work together for good to those who love God the Father, for those who are called according to the Father's purpose. I take a lot of comfort in that verse this morning because I was thinking this morning about how this whole world is stacked against us and how many things there are stacked against us. And when you get educated about what goes on in this life, the more you get educated, the more you realize that this world is stacked against us. When you go into Costco, about 90% of the products in Costco are designed to poison you. But you don't think about that because you don't study food. You don't read ingredient labels. You don't think like that. You just think, there, nobody would ever be out to hurt me, especially not Costco or any of the food manufacturers, so I'm just going to eat it. But there's one substance, for example, high fructose corn syrup, that is designed to poison you, to addict you. If cigarettes weren't bad enough, because they can kill you on their own, Companies add a toxin to the cigarettes to make you so addicted to them that you can't resist them. Well, that's not the problem. There have always been deceptive people who wanted to take advantage of you. The problem is we don't care. We just let them do it. We don't say anything. It's the exact same thing that's happened in this quote-unquote COVID crisis. It took away our jobs, our sport, sporting events our ability to be close to each other, our money, a whole series of things. And we just say, well, you got to do it. You got to do it. And they got it into us with an alarming speed. took about a week to get social distancing into us. And you see when you walk around the street, people are moving away from each other. But are we saying anything about it? Are we upset about it? Yeah, we murmur about it at home. But really, we let it happen. But I take great comfort in Romans eight twenty eight that God is working this together for our good. That there's somebody at the source of all this that in spite of the deception is working all things together for good. Well, all the things that happen to you are woven together by God into a tapestry that is for your benefit. And June Murphy says it this way in her song, As believers in Christ, we have a destiny. Good. 
Because I know you love me, child This must be understood I'll lead you to your destiny Come take my hand and follow me Just trust in me Come taste and see That there is none, no I am the lover of your soul, protector, valiant, kind. I'll caress you, hold you near through all your days and nights. My banner over you is love. You are my precious. I died and rose to live again I'll never leave your side I'll lead you to your destiny Come take my hand and follow me Just trust in me Come taste and see that there Thank you, June. Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for having a plan for everything. Especially thank you for having a plan for the sin problem, the sacrifice of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to pay for every sin we would ever commit, past, present, and future. Thank you for inclining your ear to us during the times when we pray, even though we don't pray as we should. And thank you for providing God the Holy Spirit to intercede for us during prayer with groanings, too deep for words. Father, illuminate the deceptions in our lives. Cleanse us from all the ways we deceive ourselves. Help us to learn the perfect provisions you have made for us. Help us to rest in the comfort of the perfect protection that you surround us with. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, sexless marriages encourage adultery. Sexless marriages encourage adultery. So what is adultery? Adultery is extramarital sex, where 
one or both spouses go outside of their sexual relationship and have sexual relationships with other people. That's what adultery is. And sexless marriages encourage adultery. Now, are our marriages sexless? Yeah. There's a joke that says if you put a penny in a jar in the first year of your marriage for every time you have sex with your spouse, and then from the second year on, you take a penny out of the jar every time you have sex with your spouse, you'll never get through all the pennies. And we laugh. (laughs) Isn't that funny? It's not really funny. But we always, when we're talking about sex, we have that little stupid giggle that we have because we never really want to talk about it. But it's not funny. Because the statistics are, in the United States, 6 of 10 first marriages fail, 7 of 10 second marriages fail, 8 of 10 third marriages fail. And there's something that's at the source of the marriage, uh, marriage failures. I'm marrying a couple in October, and they asked me to teach them some things before we get up to the wedding ceremony, which is fantastic. So I said, okay, well, what am I going to teach them? So I'm teaching them about three things, money, fighting, and sex. Three really critical things in relationships. The first thing I taught them was fighting. Taught them how to fight in writing. And so we had a fight in writing, and... It was amazing to me the depth that they got to in one hour's time. In the times when you've been married, how long did it take you to get to the depth of what the fight was really about? Because I remember when I was married, I yelled at my wife because the refrigerator wasn't full. And what I was mad about is she wasn't helping me put the tax return together. (laughs) And And that started with a, why isn't there milk in that slot? Right there. And so what happens a lot of times is there are these unresolved fights. And when you're together for 10 years, you got 10 years worth of unresolved fights. Do you think that affects the sexual relationship at all? It does for women. Money is something you have to deal with every single day of your relationship. Do you have a system? And what about when one of the people in the pair makes a money mistake? So, we're going to talk about sexless marriages encouraging adultery. And we're going to talk about how God gives us five verses to straighten the whole problem out. Because, see, God's not complicated. All right, so we've been studying the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church for the past eight months. And we're almost halfway through it. And what we know about the church at Corinth is that it is populated by believers in Christ who are new believers. So they're immature, meaning they're not fully formed. They're not fully educated in the word. They're in the initial stages of Christianity. So their approach to Christianity is to mix the world's viewpoint into Christianity. Well, why is that? Because at the moment we become a believer in Christ, we just came out of the world. You can take the boy out of the world, but you can't take the world out of the boy. And that's really true because we have inside of us this thing called the flesh. And it is with us from now until forever, until we die. 
and it is located in our body. Well, that's why the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit took up residence in our body to do battle with that in our bodies. And that's why God says, your body is not your own, it's mine. And because it's mine, I'm going to do battle with what's in it that's trying to taint it. And your soul is mine, and your spirit is mine. He's amazing. So for the first six chapters of our study of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has been highlighting the problems the church is experiencing as reported by some of the more mature and inquisitive members of the Corinthian church. And of course, mixing in the world's viewpoint of things into Christianity causes divisions in a congregation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 say this, Now I, Paul, exhort you, fellow believers in Christ, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no rivalries, no divisions among you, and instead that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, For I, Paul, have been informed concerning you, my brethren in the Corinthian church, by Chloe's people, that there are rivalries among you. Well, there are always rivalries among people. There are always rivalries among married couples. There are always divisions among married couples. So the question is, do you know how to get a division out of your way and get the relationship back to normal ground? Do you just sweep stuff under the rug and expect that that stuff will never have to be dealt with? Or every time you have a problem, do you take the time it takes to get to the bottom of it and to make a decision about how you're going to jointly resolve it so that it doesn't affect your sexual relationship, which is a very important relationship. So next, we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians chapter 7 all the way through chapter 16, where Paul is addressing problems brought up to him in the form of questions by Chloe and other people in the Corinthian church. Paul is interested in correcting erroneous thinking. So when we get into chapter 7, there's going to be a lot of marriage stuff in there, and you're going to be inclined to think, oh, he's teaching about marriage. He isn't. What he's really doing is answering the questions that came up from the Corinthian believers. So 7 to 16, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to 16 is all about him bringing up a question that they have asked him, and then answering it. So as we begin chapter 7, we'll include the last section we studied of chapter 6 because there is no chapter break in the original languages. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, is simply a continuation into 7, but to us it looks like, oh, 6 has ended, now 7 has begun. But in the original languages, it's, there's no break. It's just it's keep, it keeps going, so... 6, 12 to 20 is the setup for the beginning of chapter 7, these five verses. So let's look at what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, and you'll see that the, the flow just continues as we go into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. You Corinthian believers say, all things are permissive, permissible to me. Or said like a teenager would say it, I can do anything I want. But I, Paul, say that not all things that you are permitted to do are beneficial for you. You Corinthian believers say, all things are permissive to, permissible for me. I can do anything I want. But I, Paul, will not be mastered by anyone or anything. And some of the things that you're permitted to do are out to master you. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. You Corinthian believers say, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And one day God the Father will do away with both the stomach and the food. So isn't it okay if we just eat whatever we want and have any sexual appetite we want? I, Paul, say your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Yet the body is not for sex for hire with a stranger. And your body is the Lord's possession. 1 Corinthians 6.14, to demonstrate the importance of the body, God the Father has not only raised the Lord Jesus Christ's body from the dead, when the women went there on the third day, his body wasn't in the grave, but he will also raise believers in Christ's bodies from the dead through his divine power, omnipotence. 1 Corinthians 6.15, or do you not know, ook, the strongest negative. Hey, don't you know? What are you, ignorant? Don't you remember what I taught you? He says this six times in chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ in union with him? At the moment of salvation, through the baptism of the Spirit, God is, the deity places itself in union with man. Boy, that looks familiar. Looks like just what happened with the Lord, deity, and Jesus Christ. Man, oh, look at the union. We as church-age believers are a duplication of that union. Ooh, looks just like marriage. Man, woman, one flesh. Wow, looks the same. It's almost like he's trying to teach us something, amen? (laughs) I love it when, when spouses criticize each other. I love it. I love watching that. I get my popcorn, I just look. Like, oh, look at that. He, he did this. She did that. He did that. By the do you guys remember that the two became one flesh, and do you know that you're criticizing yourself? When you're blaming the other person, did you know you're blaming yourself? Did you know no relationship has one person totally responsible for the thing? That you're both responsible because you're one flesh? Did you know that? Do you know it's a waste of time to argue? Anybody ever tell you that? Anybody tell you that before you got married? And tell me. So do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ in union with him? Shall I then take away the members of Christ from his possession and make them members of a prostitute? I'm joined to Christ. Should we rip that apart? Should we tear that flesh, which is what divorce is, torn flesh, Should we rip that flesh away, that union with Christ away, and then join it to a prostitute? That's what Paul's asking. And of course, that's ridiculous because once you're in Christ, in union with Christ, you can't be ripped away from him. No one will snatch him out of my hand. That's what the Lord says in John 10, 28. So shall I take away the members of Christ from his possession and make them members of a prostitute? Letting them be one flesh with evil, and prostitute is a euphemism for evil. May it never be. That's unimaginable. No friggin' way. That's what Paul is saying. 1 Corinthians 6.16. Or do you not know? Ye ignorant? Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? The two become fused. For he says the two shall become one flesh. The two become fused. I don't know whether you know what fusion is, but it's serious business. 
one of the cool things is when we are in our resurrection body and God decides to destroy the earth and the universe as we know it, we're going to see fusion. All who don't have the resurrection body are going to have fire fused to them in that explosion. Fused. Do you know what fused is? Like this, join. A lot of times when people have back problems, the surgeon goes in and fuses their vertebrae together so that they don't come apart. Fusion is serious business. What does the marriage ceremony say? What God has joined, what God has fused, let no one separate. 1 Corinthians 6.17 In contrast, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Is fused. <laughs> now that's awesome. 1 Corinthians 6.18 Therefore a command from God, flee sexual immorality. Don't do it. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body except for, the sex, for sex for hire with a stranger. This is a sin man commits that is against his own body. You may as well take a blowtorch and just run it around your face. Just burn all the skin off your face. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is indwelling you, believers in Christ, whom you have from God the Father, and you are not your own? 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you, believers in Christ, have been bought with a price, the blood of the Lord at the cross. Therefore, another command, glorify God in your body. Don't do sexual immorality. Do this. Glorify God in your body. One of the things that's always funny to me is little teenage girls, right? Now, there's nothing stupider in the world than a teenage girl, amen? Amen? Tell me. Agree with me. Tell me what I want to hear. Now, why? And I'm not saying teenage boys aren't stupid because they are not, they're not equally stupid. They may be worse. But teenage girls, how do you get to them? In their ear. You get to them in your ear. Baby, you so fine. Baby, I love you. They're lying. All they want to do is fuse themselves with you. Amen? And... And little girls, teenage girls, they buy that stuff. They might as well take out money and purchase that. Oh, tell me more in my ear. And then they get left with this little care package nine months later, and the boy is nowhere to be found after he's told that lie in your ear, and you're still stuck with that 21-year care package. Amen? I love you. Somebody who tells you they love you and you know good and well they don't know what love is, don't believe it. But we love believing lies. We love being deceived. Love it. And anybody like me starts telling you the truth about that stuff, oh, he just, he's an old fuddy-duddy. He doesn't understand. He's just out of touch. The modern age, he's old school. (laughs) I may be old school, but both of the kids I had, I had within marriage. And that's why I ain't doing that DNA thing. You know, they got that, that 23 right now. They got that 23 where they tell you, send in this. You know, spit in the tube, send it in, and we'll tell you your ancestry. That's not what that's for. 
That's so if you commit a crime, they have your DNA on file. And then once your DNA is on file, all those babies that you sired that you don't know about can come looking for daddy. Amen? I ain't about to spit in that tube. I must have had 90 kids. <laughs> Just kidding about the 90 kids thing. But you feeling me? That's happening today. People are going to the DNA files and finding a, a parent that they have who donated sperm when they were in college to make money. It's crazy. Crazy stuff going on in the world. All right, so that was 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. Now let's get to today's passage, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. It's a passage on sexuality within marriage. Five verses that tell you what the rule is for sexuality within marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, and this is Paul talking to Chloe's people, who sent the list of questions they wanted answered. Everything, every time in, verse, in chapters 7 to 16 that he's answering a question he was asked, he'll start it with that, now concerning. That's why I capitalized it for you. So, now concerning. Concerning what, Paul? The things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, that comes off as a statement. We're going to see that it's not a statement at all. Well, it comes off as a statement, and it is a statement, but they actually put a question mark on it, so we'll get to that. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. But because of immoralities, porneia, you remember the Greek word porneia, which actually means sex for hire, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. That sounds like marriage, doesn't it? That's not about marriage, it's about sex, and it's because translators are so wimpy, weak, and legalistic that they use euphemisms instead of saying what the passage actually says. So that we're going to find out how weak that is. 1 Corinthians 7, 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Isn't that funny that sex is described as a duty? That's not what the Greek says. But you see how people translate it? Sex is a duty. A duty is an obligation. A duty is a have-to. Nobody likes have-tos in this life. We like want-tos. This is how stupid it is when we don't have a teacher who's getting you the accurate translation of stuff. And then all you have to go on is all the stupid stuff that your parents taught you about sex which did not prepare you, because a lot of parents don't even want to talk to their kids about sex because they're embarrassed about it, because they don't want their kids to see their stupid viewpoint about it, their uninformed viewpoint about it. Parents are telling their kids that sex is bad. That's so stupid to tell kids that. You know why? Because the first time they get involved in a sexual experience, it's the most amazing thing that they've ever felt in their entire life. And they immediately know that you're an idiot who's out of touch. You don't tell them that. But who taught you how to teach your kids about sex? When you don't even want to talk to them about it. And then when you talk to them about it, they go, oh, 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 come on, come on, come on. My kids didn't do that. Because I didn't let them do it. Don't give me that, come on, come on, come on. I, my job is to protect you, and you're going to listen. And if you don't want to listen, I'll figure out a way to get you to want to listen. But you're going to listen to it. Because this is something that can ruin you. 
This isn't a small matter. So when somebody talks to you about sexuality, you better have your ears as big as Dumbo's ears. And understand what they're saying. And you better understand it long before the hormones start kicking in. Because if you don't talk to your kids before they fall in love, when you, once they fall in love, they're not going to listen to you. They're out of their mind, just like you were when you fell in love. And nothing good happens when you're falling. 1 Corinthians 7, 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That authority thing is really interesting. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. So stop depriving one another. What does God say to you married couples about sex? Stop depriving one another. I wonder why he would say that. Oh, Could it be that he's omniscient, that he knows all the knowable, and he knows that there's a dynamic in the marriage relationship where couples, members of the the marriage, deprive each other of sex? Do you think he he knew that, which is why he said that? Did your parents ever tell you that? When you get into a marriage relationship, don't deprive your spouse of sex. Did your parents tell you that? Uh Uh-uh. Stop depriving one another. It's a command, except by agreement for a time. Oh, there's an interesting word, mutual, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. (laughs) That one made me laugh. Like, uh, no, I'm not going to have sex right now. I'm going to go pray. (laughs) (laughs) I know a lot of married couples have that as an issue. And come together again, ooh, another euphemism, then come together again, what, for coffee? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Oh, there's an interesting one. There's something within the sexual relationship that gets you out of control. Very interesting. Well, the first thing you need to know about this passage is that Paul is not teaching about marriage. If he were... What's written here is quite incomplete. Actually, Paul is simply responding to the problems surfaced by Chloe and other people. So let's take a look at the problem that surfaced. There are many attacks on the Corinthian church designed by the enemy of God to destroy it. And one such attack came from married people who practiced asceticism. What is asceticism? It's a form of legalism, asceticism is the practice of attempting to gain a higher moral state through (laughs) self-denial. That is hilarious. So the thought is that if I deny myself sex within a marriage relationship, I'm more spiritual. How stupid is that? This was a group of married people who contended that they achieved a more spiritual state by practicing celibacy in marriage. What is celibacy? When someone is celibate, they are someone who abstains from sexual intercourse. Now, can you imagine married people abstaining from sexual intercourse? Yes, you can, because that's what most married people do. They abstain from sexual intercourse. They don't have time for it. When the kids come, The kids become the focus, even though the marriage was there before the kids got there. 
and all of a sudden the marriage has no more time. Oh, but you don't understand, Pastor Rory. We do a date night. Well, one night a month? That's, gonna, that's enough to feed your marriage? Would I feed a prized rose one night a month and think that that was a good enough deal? We treat our flowers better than we treat our marriage relationship. And here's the bad news for you about mistreating your marriage relationship. When the visitors, the seagulls, who come into your home, eat all your food, and take a crap on you on the way out, leave, what's still there? The marriage relationship. And then, for 21 years, you haven't known the person that you were there with, and what do we call it? Oh, we got to give it a name. Empty nest syndrome. And to make it especially effective, let's give it a pill too. Let's make a pill, let's make a, a pharmaceutical to cure you of empty nest <laughs> syndrome. You ought to see people that were asleep. People over here were asleep. They're all up in my pulpit right now. They're listening hard. Right? Why? Because the more you study the Word of God, the more you realize that in every quarter, everywhere, you are, on a regular basis, being deceived. You're being lied to, and you want it. You love it. Because if you didn't, you would study and find out what God has to say about a thing. In five simple verses. So a person who's celibate abstains from sexual intercourse. Can you imagine married couples doing that? Yes. Married couples abstain from sex and then they are shocked when a partner within the marriage commits adultery. He cheated on me. She cheated on me. Well, you haven't had sex in two years. I remember when I was young, a, a young married man and this woman who uh, uh, was one of my clients that I worked for, one of the most beautiful women that I've ever met in my entire life. Got to know her very well, and she was telling me things. And I said, so how's your marriage? She said, my husband hasn't touched me in two years. What? I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. But then I got married. It was real believable out of that. <laughs> Amen? See, when you ain't in the when you ain't married, it's not believable. Then you get married and you find out, and nobody told you that. You could end up not having sex with your spouse for 10 years. And I don't mean for medical reasons. All right? If one of the spouses has a, a bad back, yeah, understandable. All right? But that's real life. Well, Paul is celibate, which is a spiritual gift that he had. What does it mean to be celibate? It, it doesn't mean that he was, had the willpower to abstain from sex. It was that he realized, the Lord realized that if he was married or had the sexual burning that is typical of human beings, that that would take his focus off writing two-thirds of the New Testament. So he gave him the gift of celibacy. Paul is celibate. And as we go through chapter 7, we'll find out that Paul thinks celibacy is preferable to but not superior to sexual activity. And so we'll see that coming out. This celibacy in the marriage group thought that they would get a sympathetic ear 
from Paul because he's celibate. So this group that was celibate within marriage thought, oh, if we talk to Paul with, about this, he's going to agree. Well, he didn't agree with them. So they were wrong. What you were taught about sexual intercourse, what was it? What were you taught about sexual intercourse, especially in marriage? Most of the teaching about sexual intercourse doesn't come from well-informed parents. It comes from ill-informed teenagers. Here are some of the things that we're taught about sex. It's dirty. It's wrong. It's bad. What a lie. (laughs) Sex is like golf. You don't have to be that good at it to enjoy it. If (laughs) If you're female and you have sex, you're a whore or you're a slut. And most of those comments are perpetrated by women against women, not women against, not men against women. When you have sex, it will always lead to pregnancy. You know how hard it is to get pregnant? It will always lead to sexually transmitted diseases. Do you know what the chances are of one sexual intercourse uh, activity leading to a sexually transmitted disease? It's less than 1%. God will hate you if you do it. It's a sin. It's a marriage. In marriage, it's a duty. It's not something to be liked. It contains a lot of unnatural acts. And it's to be used against your spouse in exchange for what you want. The list is endless. Of all the perversions that Satan uses to teach us not to enjoy something that is eminently enjoyable. And so what do we do? We believe all that crap. We let that crap run us, and then we have lousy relationships in marriage. Who taught you a single thing that makes sense about sexuality? If you had someone who taught you well, thank them. My mother taught me well. What is that microphone thing? Is that the speaker? Oh. I don't know either. Probably not the mic. Who taught you a single thing that makes sense about sexuality? My mom taught me well. She gave me the book. Everything you always wanted to know about sex, we're afraid to ask. She said, read this book and ask me any question that you want. That was the biggest mistake she ever made in her entire life, of course, because I read the book about five times and I asked her a question about every single thing because that's the way I learned. But she was very candid. When she knew the answer, she would tell me. And when she didn't, she would tell me. And she would give me some very sound advice about it. The Corinthian ascetics were selling the idea that couples should abstain from sex when they are married. And it would make them more spiritual. There are always people on the outside trying to sell you on what you ought to do sexually. And that is hogwash, what they believed. And the Apostle Paul took five verses to clear up the question of sexuality and marriage. And when we return from our five-minute break, we'll take your offering and then we'll hear what Paul has to say about sexuality within marriage. Five-minute break. Why you ever chose me? It's always been a mystery All my life I've been told I belong At the end of the line With all the other not quite With all the never get it right But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all 
Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, sexless marriages encourage adultery. Sexless marriages encourage adultery. Everything God gives us is given in abundance. So let your mentality in giving reflect his. Give in abundance as well. Avoid the mentality of scarcity. And watch what God does with the abundant mentality in your life. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with the offering message. Good morning. My name is Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Barat Ministries. And Barat Ministries is a worldwide Christian church where real people come to listen to a real pastor teach the real truth from the Word of God. And as we've been studying Corinthians, I've been thinking a lot about relationships. And one verse really has been sticking out in my head, and I don't know that it connects to relationships too much, but it seems like it does to me, and it's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 through 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Sounds like my mic's going in and out. Sure, 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 sure. So, whether we're on a team, in a marriage, or it's our career, or it's a church, they're all relationships. And we can be hot, lukewarm, or cold in these relationships. And so in a relationship like a team, are we all in? Are we all out? Is this popping in and out? Yeah, I hear it. (laughs) So in a team, you're either hot or cold or lukewarm, right? So how are you on a team? Are you all in? Are you there to work your ass off and, and you know, dedicate yourself to the team? Or are you there just to kind of punch a ticket and just to say you were on a sports team? And in, a, in, a, in a marriage, are you all in? Are you there? Are you, are you trying to give your best? Or are you just kind of, once again, just running the hamster wheel and just doing what you've got to do, work, eat, sleep, work, eat, sleep, and not really caring about it? And same goes for our career. You know, do you really care about your career? Are you just there to punch the time clock? and get a, get a paycheck? Are you really there to be dedicated to it? And that's how, we are, that's how we should be at church. We should really be hot towards church. We are Christians. We've gone from, from cold and being dark and not having the light, of the light of Christ in our life to being hot. And we should be hot. We should give our all here. We should give our time, our talent, and our treasure. And so I was just taking a minute to evaluate my own temperature and my relationships. And we don't have to be perfect. God said, he says right here, I know your deeds. He knows we're not perfect. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to have some, some fervency, some zeal. And those are all biblical words that sound silly to teenagers, I'm sure. But we have to have some, some fire in our lives. We have to have something that, that we, if we care about it, then let's, let's be hot towards it. You know? And then like, it's like lukewarm coffee. It's awful. You want to vomit it out of your mouth. Hot coffee's good. Cold coffee, pretty good. You get lukewarm. You get a believer that isn't really tied into their life. They're not really tied into their eternal, their eternal rewards, and they're not really tied into their spiritual gift. It's just it's unfortunate for God. It's like when Satan thought that Adam and Eve would come to him, they'd go from hot to cold. They went lukewarm. They went to themselves, and they didn't, they didn't really pick a side. And so I think as Christians, we've picked a side. And if we're in a marriage, we've picked a side. It's the marriage. And if we're on a team, you know, let's go for the team. Let's, let's dedicate our extracurricular activities that don't hurt our team. 
I had a buddy that I played football with in high school. He would always eat Wendy's all day, and he'd drink Pepsi. And every game, he'd go down with a cramp, and we'd just be bagging on him. We would bring him water, and he didn't like drinking water. And it's just one of those things, like, let's help the team whenever we're here, or wherever we are. You know, so as Christians, we're always an ambassador for Christ. So let's help the church. Let's help Christ get his message out. And that goes for, you know, the way we treat our bodies, the way we treat ourselves around other people. They see us how we act. They see that we might be hot towards God on Sunday, but we're cold and lukewarm during the week. So let's just remember to be hot and stay, stay um, focused on God and stay, you know, let's stay tuned in to the Holy Spirit who's guiding our lives. And the only way to do that is to pray unceasingly, forget completely about rebound, and think about grace, and think about others instead of ourselves. And so thank you very much for always thinking about others as you give at the offering. And just remember that the gospel is the most important thing in our lives, and it should be really, you know, played everywhere, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. But I think sometimes we're scared. We're a little scared to be that Bible thumper a little scared to put our real motives out there. And when we do, we'd be surprised that a lot of people feel the same way we do. And they're looking for an outlet, and we can be that outlet. So thank you very much. Today's Bible lesson, Sexless Marriages Encourage Adultery. So let's study 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, verse by verse, and let's learn God's attitude towards sex in marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, such as, Isn't it good for a man not to touch a woman? 
Now, you see, if you look back at the 1 Corinthians or 7, 1 verse, as it's translated in the New American Standard Version, it doesn't look like this. All right, so here we have this, the now concerning part. Remember that every time Paul talks about a problem that he was asked about, he's going to say now concerning. And so here he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, such as, isn't it good for a man not to touch a woman? That's the ascetic viewpoint. Married couples who were ascetic, who were practicing self-denial and celibacy in their marriage. They're now asking the celibate Paul, isn't it good for a man not to touch a woman? All right, so to touch a woman in this verse is a euphemism. It's the substitution of a vague expression for one that is thought to be offensive or too direct. And many of the Bible translators have a problem reporting what the original languages of the Bible say because the things being said don't correspond to their legalistic attitudes. They too thought sex was bad and wrong, and so they'd bring that to their translations. There's a lot of legalism surrounding sex. Why? Because sex is such a big deal in life and in relationships, but especially in marriage. God forbid any of us should indicate that we actually enjoy sex. How many times do you hear men saying they enjoy sex? How many times do you hear women saying they enjoy sex? How many times do you hear couples talking about sex and talking about their enjoyment of it? Oh, no, that's private. I don't think we need to talk about that. You don't want to talk about it because you're embarrassed at what your lousy viewpoints are about it. But how can you learn anything about it if you don't talk to people about it and find out what people think about it, what people say about it, what people have been taught, how they got rid of what they taught? That's one of the things that's really, uh, really bugging me in my own life right now. I've been assessing uh, how do you change? And when you really think about it, when you want to make a change, you're going to move from something to something else. And unless you have a catalyst, a program, a routine that takes you from where you are to the new thing, you won't do it. Because what does Isaac Newton say? A body at rest tends to remain at rest, and a body in motion tends to remain in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. All right, so you have this attitude about sex. Where'd you get the attitude from? It's probably 50 years old, 40 years old, 30 years old, adopted, when you were an idiot as a kid and a parent told you something, you bought it, implanted it, and it's never going to change because I wasn't raised that way. I wasn't raised that way. And so we're still running stuff, stupid stuff that our parents taught us. Instead of taking the thing out and saying, okay, here's what my parents taught me about sex. Is that effective in my marriage relationship? Or is it just dumb? And if it's just dumb, you throw it out. And now that you have a blank space, you as an adult can actually decide what you think about it and insert something in that actually gets you the intended result. But that's not what we do because we are so stupid. We adopt some stupid viewpoint that's getting us the wrong result, 
and then we hold on to it. I'm stubborn. No, you're an idiot. If it doesn't work for you, throw it out. God's telling us five verses. This is what works as it relates to sex and marriage. Do this. So whatever viewpoint you have, if it's not God's viewpoint, the guy who created the thing is probably dumb. And I'm not just talking to you. I'm a walking poster boy for dumb stuff that I have adopted and failed to examine, which doesn't get the result. Just yesterday, I had a whole box of Australian red vines. That's some manufactured candy that is poison. I know that's not good stuff to eat. If I had my choice of eating that or eating some grapes, I'd eat the grapes. But I like candy. Yeah, but candy's been proven to be destructive. Why don't you just throw it out? That's what I'm talking about. So I'm not talking out of school. I'm not just blaming you and saying, oh, you know, boy, if you could be more like me. But as adults, we need to make assessments. This is one of the areas. All right? So to touch a woman is a euphemism, and it means to have sexual intercourse with a woman. And in this case, it is a reference to married women having sex with their own husbands. So the question being asked really isn't a question. Put, put uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 back up. It says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, such as, isn't it good for a man not to touch a woman? That's not really a question. It's a statement posing as a question. It's one-sided in, 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 in that it asks, what should a married male do in the matter of touching a woman? And touching meaning having sexual intercourse with a, a woman. Why aren't we talking about what a woman ought to do? Women are in there too, aren't they? So that's the ascetic viewpoint. The ascetic viewpoint is don't have sex in marriage, be celibate, and only looking at what the man should do, as if the woman doesn't have a viewpoint. That's Satan. And we buy it. It reminds me of the time when the woman was brought out into the square by the Pharisees and and they said, This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. The Mosaic law says we should stone her to death. What do you say we should do? Now, Jesus had the perfect thing. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That wouldn't have been my response. My response would have been, get the guy out here and stone them both to death. You know what to do. Where's the guy? The guy wasn't there because he was a Pharisee. And the women were mistreated, one-sided. That's not God. God handled the problem the real way it ought to be handled. If it was a real question, it would have been asked this way. Is it good for women and men to have sexual intercourse within marriage? Yes or no? Yes. And so the ascetics propose that to be a good Christian, you have to abstain from sex during marriage. That's one of the things I hate about unbelievers. They're always talking to us Christians about what we ought to be, do to be good Christians. 
And what they don't know is that we're worse than they are. Because we have a conflict going on inside of us. They don't have any conflict going on inside of us. They're on the wrong team. Everything with them is one-sided, evil. We have good and evil going on inside of us. So, in my view, the very same approach is the operational methodology for more than half of the married couples in this world. What the ascetics propose is the operational methodology for more than half of the married couples in the world. And what is that operational methodology? Sexless marriages. More than half of the married couples in the world don't have sex. That's insane. And I'm not talking about for medical reasons. Sexless marriage destroys marriages because it encourages adultery. Do not be surprised if you are in a sexless marriage and you find out that your spouse is engaged in an extramarital affair. Don't scratch your head about why that is. You ain't taking care of business at home. What do you think's going to happen with human beings? Let's be serious. There are so many taboos concerning sex. It infects every relationship in our lives. And when it's time to discuss sex with our children, when it's time to discuss sex with our friends, we just don't. We get this stupid little giggle. <laughs> we get embarrassed, and we don't have a real conversation about it. Paul rejects the ascetic assertion, and he goes on to teach the sexual norms each partner signs up for in marriage. When you sign up for marriage, you sign up for sexual norms. Single source. When you marry somebody, they become your single sexual source. Amen? Amen? Now, if you're the single source and you're not engaging in sexual relations, then you're depriving your spouse. That's not how God would have you handle it. So, Voluntary restraint toward a basic urge like sex is likely to end in defeat. Why? Because you don't have the willpower to resist temptation. Your will is not stronger than the flesh, and if you are not engaging in sexual intercourse in your marriage, and you have the urge to engage in sexual intercourse in your marriage, when the attractive member of the opposite sex comes along and propositions you, you will likely take it. Amen? Don't be surprised. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do verse 1 first and then go to verse 2. So let's look at it again. So verse 1 was, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, such as, Isn't it good for a man not to touch a woman? Here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Because of the temptations of sexual immoralities, like fornication and purchasing sex for hire with strangers, each man is to have sex with his own wife, and each woman is to have sex with her own husband. Isn't that something? Marriage 
is the only God-sanctioned environment for sexual satisfaction. When sexual satisfaction is not provided at home, one or the other partner will seek satisfaction by illicit means. If you're married and you don't get that, you are awfully naive. If you aren't taking care of business at home from the sexual perspective, please do not be surprised when somebody goes outside of the relationship. This is not permission to go outside the relationship. It's permission for you not to be naive so as to think that if you're not taking care of business at home, that there isn't somebody in the world who's willing to take care of your business. Amen? 1 Corinthians 7.3. The husband must fulfill his sexual obligation to his wife. And here's what it says in the, in the Greek. Instead of sexual obligation, what does it say? The husband must fulfill his duty, requirement, obligation by making himself available to his wife sexually. And likewise also, the wife must fulfill her sexual obligation to her husband by making herself available to him. Isn't that simple? We make ourselves available to each other. You know what word drives that? Mutual. One word describes the sexual relationship in, mar in marriage. Mutual. It must work for both parties. And it must be worked at. You don't automatically come from the factory with the owner's manual. Amen? You got to do some experimentation. Amen? Amen? There's that little giggle. <laughs> But you get the rest of your life to do it. How fun is that? So fun. <laughs> but it must work for both parties. Sexual intercourse in, in a marriage distributes authority differently. How about that? There is equality in the sexual relationship in marriage. And that, that's why I'm telling you that Paul is not teaching about marriage. Because he didn't teach about the authority relationship. Many men have taken advantage of women in marriage by insisting that if a man wants sex, the wife has to do it. That is not mutual. That's not what the Bible teaches. The man's God-bestowed authority in the marriage relationship does not extend to the sexual relationship. Why not? Because, put that verse up, oh, I didn't. I, I got ahead of. I got ahead of myself. First Corinthians seven four, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband has authority over her body. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife has authority over his body. So see the 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 sexual relationship is an equality relationship. The marriage relationship is the husband has authority and the wife is. In submission to her husband. The husband's the president, the wife's the vice president. In the sexual relationship, that's not the case. It's very much like parenting. Both parents have authority in the parental relationship. See, so what does that mean? What's the word that describes that? Mutual. What do we want to do? That's what this is all about. But men have taken advantage 
by insisting that I have authority over you in the sexual matter, so when I want it, you have to do it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. First Corinthians, what'd you say? Amen. <laughs> Got a witness. <laughs> it's awesome, June. June came up on the break and told me some things her parents taught her about sex, and it was just hilarious. And it's just exactly what we, whatever you think it is that her parents taught her, that's exactly what they taught. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Now the command from God. Stop depriving one another of sex. Take care of business. Command, accept by mutual agreement for a time, so that you may withdraw to devote yourself to prayer. There are other reasons that you might not, you might mutually decide that it's not your, in your best interest as well, like you, if you were at a concert. <laughs> Amen? That would not be the place. <laughs> the peanut gallery back there is giving me a squint. Like, what's wrong with that? So that you may withdraw to devote yourself to prayer. And then come together again. Another euphemism. Then have sexual intercourse again after the period of time where you've stopped for a point of period of time. So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex is a drive. And if you're not with the gift of celibacy, it's a drive. What's, What's up with Roman Catholic priests? These are males with a drive. And they're being told they have to be celibate without having the gift of celibacy. And then the Catholic Church is scratching their hair. Why do they do all these things? Gee, I wonder why that's happening. You know why it's happening. Because you've asked somebody to do the impossible. That's why it's happening. Lack of self-control in this verse is sexual passion. So, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your sexual passion, passion, your desire to fulfill a normal sexual drive that is within yourself in a marriage relationship. Those who are unmarried with sexual urges should marry, according to Paul. We'll see that later. However, marriage is not to be used as a way to legitimize sex because Marriages have a lot more to them than sex. It is not, marriage is not simply a lawful outlet for sexual urges. There's a lot more to marriage. Now, Paul dispenses with the argument of married people who practice asceticism in the Corinthian church. He says, that's just stupid. What married individuals choose in the matter of sexuality in marriage does not make them more pleasing to God or less pleasing to God. And it is erroneous to think sexual abstinence in marriage is holy. It is not. It encourages adultery, so don't be surprised when it happens to you. Okay, five verses. Five verses. God getting right to the point about what sex in marriage is all about. What's it all about? Stop depriving one another. Understand the authority relationship. Come together, be apart for a time, then come back together, have sex again. Now, are you going to keep the stupid stuff that you adopted when you were the stupidest in your life as a kid from parents who may not have known what they were talking about? 
who were told that stuff by their parents who didn't know what they were talking about? Or are you going to bulk erase the old, ineffective ways of thinking about a thing and replace it with something else? That's the question. When's the last time you talked to your spouse, you married folks, about sex? When's the last time you made an agreement about sex? I had friends, uh, we were talking about the sexuality in their marriage. And I'll never forget this, which is why I want to share it with you. I said, you know, what do you guys do about sexuality in your marriage? And the husband said, we have a no-refuse sex policy. (laughs) He may have well he has may, may as well have taken water and poured it on my computer keyboard. That completely short circuited my mind. And I said, "What do you mean by that?" He said, "Is there something hard to understand about no refuse? If I come to her and ask her to have sex with me, she does. And if she comes to me and asks to have sex with me, I do. We don't refuse each other. Oh, God has an expression for that. Stop depriving one another. I said, this is BS. What you're saying is BS. You do not do that. And the wife said, oh, yeah, we do. Yesterday I came home from work. I told him, get your butt in the bedroom. And I I said, did you guys buy that? It's like, is there a bottle of that that you can buy? Can you get it on Amazon? (laughs) (laughs) And there actually are married couples who have that policy. That's exactly what God is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. except by mutual agreement. Mutual. So, maybe this lesson could spur a conversation for you married people about a revisit to your agreement about the sexual relationship. Maybe. I don't know. But I'm glad I taught it. And I hope you enjoyed it. And I'm glad you're awake. Well, the closing moments of our lesson today are uh, sending out a message to you, requesting that you make the most important decision of your life. We want you to know that God wants you. And what he wants from you is that you make the most important decision of your life. So the closing moments of our study are for the benefit of anyone who does not have a personal relationship with the Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, the sovereign God of the universe. We want you to know that God wants you. I've got bad news for you. The bad news is that all of us are born in a state of unrighteousness. We are born physically alive and spiritually dead as ungodly, unrighteous unbelievers. It is not our fault, but it is our circumstance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, the Bible says, All in union with Adam at physical birth, and that's every person who comes to the earth, are set to die the second death in the lake of fire. But in the face of this bad news, there's good news. 
the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, provides a way for you to be saved. You can go from being unsaved to being saved, and there's only one way, Jesus Christ. The good news is preached in what Christians call the gospel message. So let's see what happens when the gospel was preached in a prison in first century Rome. Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 34. Now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God from their jail cells, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Acts sixteen twenty six. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. Acts sixteen twenty seven. And when a jailer, a prison guard, awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, because allowing prisoners to escape carried a penalty of instant execution for the prison guard. Acts 16.28, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying to the guard, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Acts 16.29, And the jailer called for the lights to be turned on, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Acts 16.30, And after the prison guard brought Paul and Silas out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The guard had obviously been listening to the spiritual songs Paul and Silas were singing. Acts 16.31, Paul and Silas said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and everyone in your household who also believes. There are no works of any kind necessary to be saved. It is simply faith expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ alone that is the ticket to eternal life. Acts 16.32 And Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord, the gospel message, the good news to the jailer, together with all the people who were in his house. Acts 16.33 And the jailer took Paul and Silas that very hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and immediately the jailer was baptized by God the Holy Spirit, he and his household, who also believed, and they all did. Acts 16.34, And the jailer brought Paul and Silas into his house, and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in the God, the Lord Jesus Christ, with his whole household. How did our jailer friend get saved? In a crisis, he recognized he needed a Savior. He asked someone who knew what it took to be saved. Believers in Christ presented the accurate gospel message, and the jailer did what was suggested. Hey, don't wait for a crisis to be saved. Do it now. Now, who is this God who saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance the gospel message I also received, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. It's bad news if you choose not to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 20 say this, For the wrath of God the Father is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and against the unrighteousness of men, unbelievers, who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God the Father is evident inside of them, 
For God the Father made it evident to them from the inside of them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, God's eternal power, and God's divine nature, his deity, have been clearly seen by all mankind, being understood even through what has been made, that is, in nature, God's creative work, so that all mankind is without excuse before God. God makes himself clearly visible to human beings in ways that make sense to human beings, both from the inside of them and from the outside of them. Remember what Paul said to the jail guard in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. So accept the invitation and heed the warning of John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life, eternal life, the Zoe life, right at that moment. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. Don't miss your opportunity. Take advantage of the good news right now. All right, we close in song. Can a believer in Christ lose his salvation? Harmony, can a believer in Christ lose his salvation? It's yes or no. That's not yes or no. That's shrugged shoulders. Yes or no? What'd you say? No? Well, John chapter 10, verse 28 agrees with you. It says, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, give eternal life to believers in Christ, the resurrection life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, combined with verses 37 to 39, say it in an even better way. Who will separate us, believers in union with Christ, from the unconditional love of the Christ? Will tribulation separate us? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us unconditionally. For I, Paul, am convinced of this very thing, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us believers in Christ from the unconditional love of God the Father, which comes from being in union with Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's June Murphy to express these ideas in a song as she asks the question, what can separate you? His love reached from the heavens to the far ends of the earth To give you life forever He left no stone unturned And before the birth of time Jesus had you on his mind So you never need to question his concern 
So what can separate you from the precious love of God? And who could ever come against his strong and perfect love? So when you're in the valley and your nights are cold and lonely, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. Remember, nothing can separate you from God's love. He numbered each and every star and calls them all by name. He counts them one by one and sees that they are still plays. And if he cares for every star, then he sees right where you are. You can trust you'll never fall from his embrace. So what can separate you? Precious love of God, and who could ever come against this strong and perfect love? So, when you're in the valley and your nights are cold and lonely, the darkest hour is just before. Nothing present, nothing future, nothing never. Remember what can separate you from the precious love of God. And who could ever come Somebody ate her Wheaties this week. <laughs> Your voice was beautiful today, June. Hey, was, yeah, that would be a really good idea. <laughs> if you do that every week, that would be amazing. <laughs> that was terrific. 
Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Jesus and he will make your path straight. For the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He'll be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So do not fear or be dismayed. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is the God of justice and blessed are those who wait for him. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might promote you at the proper time, slamming all your cares on his back because he cares for you. God considers your problems to be his responsibility. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we just thank you for taking on everything in the matter of us. We are so happy that we have a place to bring our cares. And there are many cares that you put before us in this life. Tribulation that you give us to take us to the spiritual gymnasium. Things that we go through so that you make us tough. You're always giving us more than we can handle, and we appreciate it. You're always putting us in the toughest situations that require us to think our way out of them. And you expect our thinking to be the thinking that you have, the word, of the Lord, the mind of Christ. So as we go forward this week, we just pray that you always bring to mind the spiritual solution as we face each one of the problems that we face. And if anything, we have a different attitude, we expect that you will show that to us. Help us to delete from our mindsets the old and outmoded ways of doing things that no longer work and help us to learn and to adopt new things all of which are in line with your will. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. 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 Thanks for coming. Thanks for watching. And thanks for listening.